We are back at the movies. <laughs> yep, this you play, week... You playing that live? <laughs> this week, I'm back with Mr. George Taylor. I'm Stephen Hussey, and we are talking about overrated movies. <laughs> so strap in, get your popcorn, and let's talk about some films. So once again, Steve, uh, not so much a clarification. Well, yeah, let's say a clarification. Have we got the same note as to what the topic is? My title that I've been working for is Films Supposed to Be Good That We Hate. Is that the same as a film that's overrated? I, I think that is the same. I think we're on I think we're on the same page right here. We're in I the mean, same ballpark for sure. Yeah, I mean overrated implies a lot of people think this is a lot of people rate this film as very good. I think mm-hmm. that's fair. Okay. Um, and so, yeah, we're going to talk about, I, I don't, you know, and I don't, I don't, I don't, I think this can seem like a bit of a negative episode, but and you know, we're both, we, and, and in some ways it is, but we both love movies a lot. And this is just a selection of our opinions. It's just us looking through the films that we just, for whatever reason, they're touted as great, maybe culturally significant, maybe beloved by critics and audiences, but we just don't respond to. Um, where, where, George, you brought this one to the table. You, were you feeling, are you feeling it's Oscar season approaching? Are you feeling particularly catty? Are you feeling despondent about the state of films? Is, it, is there something that's got your goat? Uh, well, you know what? I'm a man who often lives, lives a bit in the past, right? I'm always bringing Hitchcock to the table and... Potentially, we'll be bringing Hitchcock to the table again today. Um, I've not seen a ton of this year's Oscar picks, but I do have that kind of slightly predictable, you know, things aren't as good as they used to be attitude with the last few years of the Oscars. Maybe the Oscars peaked for me in about 2007. It's been a bit of a slippery slope since then, give or take. Uh, I'm um, I'm fairly with you on that, I think. I think... Um... Yeah, I, I think there's lots of recent films that will not age too well. Um, but but some classics probably as well. I'm sure we're I'm sure we're gonna bring some stuff into the mix. I think it's fair to say this is gonna hurt someone's feelings this episode because the directors you know, if they're listening, hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I mean I really hope they're not listening because probably I love a lot of those guys. I just didn't like these particular films. Um yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm sure there'll be some people who go, oh my God, you said that film I loved, you my favourite. Well, that's the fun of having opinions. We can disagree and you can tell us your overrated films. Um, so George, when we talk about overrated, I think it's important to say, you know, you're saying, well, you're okay, there is a slight difference in our definition here because I think you're saying a film that's meant to be good, we we think is a bad movie, right? That's your... Yeah, the way I've I've sort of, the films I'm bringing to the table, at least the the ones I'm a bit more um, earnest about my decisions behind, I think all of them are rated above an eight on IMDb, which for me is quite a a good barometer for a kind of general scale of picking whether a film's good. You know, I I don't really use Rotten Tomatoes as an indicator. I use IMDb and I think anything with with an eight or above on that scale is, is usually a pretty good film. Um, so films that are above that number 
and I think are also particularly poor is how I've gone about making my decisions here, really. Right. So I have done that with a few. I've picked a few, though, that I actually think... I have picked some where I think the film is maybe, I think, mediocre or fine, but I think its rating is absurdly high and yeah. has been beloved beloved to an extent that is completely out of proportion with the quality. For sure, um, yeah. So hit me with where where does where does your journey start, George? What what's what really gets your ire? Oh, I'm going to I'm going to bring up one that is maybe a slightly obscure, but it's the film that I watched, which actually made me come up with the title for this podcast because I'd read a lot of good things about this film and was quite excited to watch it, and I thought it was a pile of old rubbish, Steve. Um, I'm talking about the film Brazil, directed by Terry Gilliam. Um, it's a British sci-fi film from the late 80s and is on all the lists of the great sci-fi films. I'm not a massive sci-fi nerd, but I do really like well-delivered sci-fi films. And this one has a great cast. It's got Jonathan Price. Um, it's got Robert De Niro, uh, a, a great director in many ways. Um, I absolutely despised it. I, I just found it interminably boring. The aesthetic of it, I hated. I think we should also caveat this podcast with there probably will be spoilers, but once again, if we're not talking about the films in this year's Oscars cycle, it's kind of fair game. Um, yeah. This is <laughs> this film's 30 years old. I think I get I can't even remember what happened. I was that sort of bored by it. But we'll um, warn you if there's an enormous plot twist that we're gonna reveal. But sure. Yeah. Um so the the premise for this film is that it's a kind of um it's a dystopian future slightly steampunky you've seen this film have you yeah i have yeah. seen it um, I I, guess... I'll, I'll tell you my opinion after but you okay. yeah, seen... i would say it's it's not steampunk but it's a, a a world that is futuristic but also has a lot of kind of old technology lots of pipes lots of steam lots of mechanics um, and it's long story short about a man who is um, a cog in a wheel of a very bureaucratic system and a slight slight incident happens which sets off a, a crazy tangent of, of wild and wacky events and it's I suppose a commentary on kind of bureaucracy and the way society is going under all of those constraints but I found it so physically physically uh, exhausting to watch i didn't feel that there was one scene that was um that, that wasn't stressful every single physical motion in that film was someone stumbling or tripping or caught in something <laughs> or tangled up and i i'm sure that there's obviously a lot of deliberate decision in that but it, it made it so exhausting for me to watch that I, I was already on edge i found the aesthetic to be kind of tiresome really um all the characters wear like 1930s gangsters outfits or big like double-breasted tweed coats and trilby hats but there's all this kind of hokey steam stuff going on in the background and it didn't make me think 1984 in its aesthetic the plot to me felt very like derivative of something like 1984 it made me think of the super mario brothers film that was kind of what I thought of it, how it looked and how everything came about. Um, Robert De Niro was playing a sort of Super Mario kind of superhero plumber, <laughs> um, which 
I thought he was I thought he was terrible in it, really sort of dialing it in. But then possibly one of the weirdest cameos of all time. Bizarre, like, but he's much, so kind of unnecessary. One of yeah. the most unnecessary De Niro castings ever. It's like you could have put sure. anyone in that role. He didn't do anything that was De Niro. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> could have been anyone. I guess he just, his name was on the posters and that helped. But then you've got Jonathan Price. Is Jonathan Price, right? Is the kind of yeah. everyman. He's far too much of a kind of stentorian thesp to be the everyman. It, I just don't believe him as a normal person. He needs to be either you know, his Game of Thrones character or the Bond villain he plays or someone with real presence within the character. But he was playing kind of, you know, office drone number 10 and it just didn't suit the voice he has and the way he delivers it. And I didn't feel like any, it felt like lots of square pegs and round holes. I was exhausted by the process of how it was put together. And I didn't feel that anything about the story was unique or novel. It, it was just Big Brother, right? It was you know, evil machinations operating on a higher state level and affecting the everyman. I I don't know what else it brought to the table. And then it had these bizarre kind of fantasy scenes where it's sort of these like wish fulfillment scenes of him seeing himself as this angel flying through the sky and escaping his otherwise quite tiresome existence. I I just don't see how anyone would have found anything about it enjoyable. Um, the aesthetic and, and everything about it. And it, I read that it, it was listed in the top 25 British films of all time. And I, I just can't see how. Um, it, it might come down to a taste thing, but I, yeah, I found it incredibly exhausting. I thought the final scene, the final shot was very well put together. But to get to that point, I'd already like, you know, lost all enthusiasm and energy. And I watched it over about four sittings because I couldn't, it couldn't hold my attention. So, um, yeah, I think it's like an 8.3, 8.4 on IMDb, very highly regarded. But I have to say I found it, found it interminable. I, um, so I pretty much agree with everything you said, actually. Um, okay. I, I have, it's one of those films that I thought, I thought I sort of liked the first time I saw it. And then I saw it again and I was like, this is, like you say, inc- has incredibly long, boring stretches of filler. It has interminably long dream sequences. Um, I think what I like the most about it, I, I basically like the idea, um, which is kind of some mishmash of 1984 and almost, but what if they were a bungling bureaucracy that were kind of, they're almost like a boobish version of Big Brother. They're, they're a bit more haphazard. They're a bit less, um, yeah, there's loads of more absurdity and more... Do you it's think more that's about- the concept? Because I, f- I felt like the world it presents is one that otherwise does function pretty well. And it's only because of this particularly, I think a, a cockroach is crushed on a typewriter and it changes what a text says. You know, that's like a, an obscure one-off. It To me, it didn't feel as if it was this they're all a bunch of boobs and this is happening every day. It felt like it was a complete anomaly in their world that this was occurring. So I'd be surprised if that was the premise. Maybe, but there's lots of sort of odd, I don't know. It's like lots of interminable bureaucracy and it's almost like mocking. Yeah. Kind of mocking absurd levels of bureaucracy. And I guess it's just kind of a more playful satire of the big Mm. brother thing. Um, But, but I agree with you. It doesn't. It doesn't really add anything that isn't in nineteen eighty four to say. It doesn't say anything no, really fresh. It's more like 
it's more like Terry Gilliam put his weird visual eye on that idea, which, you know, sometimes Terry Gilliam is very visually interesting. Obviously, with the Monty Python stuff, his visuals are very definitive of that kind of comedy. And it does, it, they are like really fun to look at. But this film kind of is, is kind of, it looks dated and ugly in a way that makes it very hard to watch now like it it all just looks the sets feel sort of almost like made of cardboard in sort of weird way and it all feels um i think sci-fi is often and even dystopian stuff is often an opportunity to present something that's like visually you know stimulating even if the plots drivel you can say oh well it looks really good or there's something you know there's some eye candy whereas this was just like a sludgy <laughs> sludgy it, look, it looks palette. very yeah. it's very yeah unappealing and then there's just the strange grotesque citizens who sort of have these absurd like wigs and makeup and things but it's like it's um and then mario, the mario I... de niro pops up every 10 minutes to fix a pipe and it's all just yeah that. a completely unmemorable de niro performance the only bit i really remember so vividly is the final sequence which looks the best part of the film is is almost it's a, a mirror of big brother in 1984 where they take him to the the ministry of love or whatever it is but he yeah. kind of gets operated on and there's a kind of it looks like a better film at that point and looks like a more tense exciting film but then it it just has this absurdly long ending and yeah i i, I agree with you though i couldn't in good conscience show it to anyone and be like the fact that people talk about it as a culturally significant film is kind of really strange to me. Yeah. Um, oh, good. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm glad we're on the same page for that one. I, that may have been quite a long talk through a film not too many people have seen, but it was one of those <laughs> that had been like over my shoulder for a long time. Of Oh, this is a great film in a genre that I, I feel like I should watch. And I would say to anyone who's thinking the same, don't waste your time. Um, I'm going to go for one that I don't find risible but i feel in the same way as brazil the cultural where it stands in the cultural pantheon and in terms of people quoting it uh film buffs talking about it never quite gels with me mm-hmm. and that film is the princess bride okay um, have you seen the princess bride yeah i have um what do you think of it i i've I've seen it and I've never thought of it again, um, which is probably about right. I just think it's, you know, a six and a half, seven out of 10 film. I think it's probably a film that people have great emotional connection with, depending on the time in your life that you see it. I saw it when I was like 26 and just watching it because I felt like I needed to see it. I reckon if you see it as a 13 year old, it might grip you in a different way, but um, it, it felt like a fairly by numbers slightly satirical um fantasy which is kind of what it is right um there's yeah. a few quotable bits and pieces in it but no more so than any other film in that style yeah there's like some funny lines it's not that it there's some funny lines but the film has large stretches that are quite tedious mm. it actually feels quite long for a film that's 90 minutes because it just kind of when it's not being a satire it's just sort of being a dull fantasy and you know, this is a film that is is known as like it's got ninety seven percent on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, on IMDb, it has an eight point one. It's put in the culturally significant all these greatest of lists of great comedies. Channel 4's fifty greatest comedy films inducted into the National Film Registry, deemed as culturally, historically important or significant. And I think like 
I think William Goldman is a great screenwriter. He's obviously one of the great sort of um, mentors for a lot of screenwriters. He wrote Musk. Yeah, that he wrote. Yeah. Um, But, you know, he's written many much better films, Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid, uh, a bunch of others, Marathon Man. And, uh, um, yeah, I I just find it, it just left me... I, I just can't believe that people are having rewatching parties of the Princess Bride and being like, you've got to, like people are saying, I, I've seen so many things where people are like, it's my favorite film. You've got to see the Princess Bride. And I remember watching it and just having a, a few little, I was like for a few little laughs, you have to endure quite a lot of boring fantasy <laughs> yeah. in the film. Um, yeah. And I, I don't really know what it's, it's sort of a satire of the general, general genre, but it's not always clear even like, what is this a parody of? It's just yeah. kind of like a silly fantasy. I, yeah, I, I just think like it was sort of a passable comedy, but to sit in this pantheon of like great movies, and I, I guess because it's quite quotable, people then think the film is better than it is. I don't yeah, know. Right. Yeah, it kind of leaves me cold as a, uh, as a comedy. Yeah, it's just, it's something I've never thought about again from having seen it. So yeah, it's surprising that it is held in the regard it is. I, my only defence would be maybe people latch onto it in their youth or, you know, it's a romance and it, it I don't know, pe- people who are enjoying those kinds of things at a young age pick it as their favourite fairly arbitrarily. But yeah, it's not, I don't think it's a great film. Um, it's certainly not befitting of that ranking on someone like IMDb for sure. Yeah. Um, all right, let's dance through. Mm-hmm. What else you got on your What else you got in your bag of goodies? <laughs> well, I'm going to go with a fairly easy one to critique. I think it's something that people critique a lot, but again, using IMD as a metric, shocks that this, just as an objective film, is ranked eight out of ten, um, and a film from a long-running series, Steve. That is often much maligned, is, is, uh, is very much a, uh, a kind of, you know, suspension of reality kind of series. But this is the film in that canon of which people go, oh, but, you know, this one was a bit of a revision for it. I'm talking about the James Bond film Casino Royale, the Daniel Craig. Oh, wow. Um, okay. Of which I, up until even six months ago, would have kind of defended in a fairly... You know, oh, well, you know, I thought uh, Skyfall was a bit rubbish, but the Casino Royale one was really good. Or, you know, James Bond lost its way, but they did a really good job with Casino Royale. I rewatched it about a month ago, Steve, and it is like panto. It is ridiculous. What? Honestly. I'm, I'm, I'm quite surprised. I'm quite surprised at this. I've always thought that of the best of the Craig years. Um, yeah, so so do I. And if, if it is the best of the Craig years, then what can we say of the Craig years? I think the issue I have with it, to be able to say that it's supposed to be good, besides I dislike it, is that it's kind of given a free pass because it's, oh, it's the serious one. And that's what I was doing about it, you know. I was thinking, oh, well, you know, James Bond's a bit stupid, and obviously, you know, it's a wish fulfillment, and he's always going to get the girl and save the world. That's a given. But it takes itself particularly seriously, and the reviewers and the kind of the the um, response that it's generated is that it's the serious one. But it is not. It is farcical. <laughs> 
it's like, you know, it's still he walks in and the girl behind the desk falls in love with him and swoons. And it, you know, it's just like scene after scene of him driving different cars for product placement or chasing someone from the Bahamas to Miami within a shot for shot and he's suddenly 30 yards behind him. Um, it's, it's just absolutely farcical. And yeah, it, it's baffling to me that as a, like an objective film, that's its ranking. There's the, the awful scene on the train where him and her are flirting with their kind of, ooh, ooh, I bet you're wearing a Rolex. No, actually, it's an Amiga. And all this sort of like back and forth badinage between them. It's, it's no worse than a Roger Moore doing his like raising of the eyebrow, but at least Roger Moore doesn't take himself seriously. And I think that's the problem with it. It, it has some really good action scenes, but they're very derivative of the Bourne films. And then the rest of it is just money for old rope, classic James Bond stuff, you know, wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, but I've got my little... Do you not even like, do you not even enjoy the casino sequences? I just, but you know what's going to happen is I, I think it, it, it tries to carry so much seriousness with throwing off all the baggage that the Bond films have spent 20 other films building up so they can go, oh, give me a martini, I don't care how you make it. And everyone's supposed to go, oh, that was so good, so clever. I mean, what's great about that really is just, you know, you've sold 20 films on, on a certain line and then he throws it away with one other line and that's, you know supposed to be super smart i don't know i i defended it and saw it as this quite serious much more like a a born film kind of event but if you sit and rewatch it now i defy you to not view it through the prism of pantomime it's it's absolutely farcical see i sort of uh see i think it is a compared to the i mean you know i'm not saying damning with faint praise but like if I compare it to the other Daniel Craig ones, I think they, what I don't like about some of them is they, like Skyfall is, is long, over long and kind of baggy and full of kind of self-seriousness and importance. And Casino Royale zips along and is entertaining and feels like, it feels like a snappy James Bond story, which sort of does appeal to me of being like, it's it's not, claiming to be more than it is it's it's, a, a it's still, kind still of half pro- hours long but it it kind of moves quickly like the the and the villain you know is a classic sort of james bond villain they have quite a tense part of the end where he's getting tortured they have yeah i i I, I agree with all that sentiment that's what i felt but then upon rewatching it none of that is actually true it's like this it's a kind of veil that I think we've all pulled over our eyes because it's the one that we do defend with all these things. But I think if you sat down and watched it now, I don't think you would find that ending scene tense. I don't think you would find the, you know, the, the dialogue to be witty or zippy. The casino scene was interminable. It goes on for so long and it's just incredibly convoluted. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, give it, uh, give uh, it are you, are you a, um, how are you about feeling when, when James Bond, some people really didn't like that he feels really bad when he kills the guy and he's sort of sitting in the shower with her. Like, like don't, don't they have a bit where he's sort of, um, or is it, you know, she gets really upset, doesn't he? Doesn't she? Because he kills someone. Yeah. So she there's, there's some emotion. No, she, I don't think she does. I think you need some to think. people had an issue where they said, Oh, James Bond shouldn't be, you know, 
shouldn't be so sentimental. Or I don't. I don't have problems with that. With the revisionism of the character in that sense, I have problems with the way that it's it's culturally now got this um, kind of aura of being the edgy, tough, smart film. But if you watch it, it is still very similar to one of the Roger Moore knockabout farces. And it's that's my issue with it. It's the way that it's kind of held, even the way I held it up until I rewatched it. But actually it's not what the source material is showing you at all. So it, there's certainly a dissonance between how it's received and how it actually is. And I think that's my problem with it. I'm not holding problems with the James Bond franchise in of itself because, you know, it comes with a load of like convoluted or ludicrous baggage anyway, but you have to leave that at the door. It's the way that this one has the reputation as being the serious and tough one. And it is still just a knockabout. Oh, there it goes doing the same old stuff. So um, that's my problem with it. Right, because if I if I was going to hit one, I might think Skyfall has a very high rating compared to it as not being so great. Mm. Perhaps like sure. Skyfall seems seemed to get a very very, it was very beloved on its release. I don't know how it's seen now in retrospect, but that one did feel a bit like it had loads of hammy, cheesy, ridiculous things, and people took it very seriously. Skyfall. Yeah, that's, I think that's, pro- that's probably how I'm perceiving Casino Royale, just because it feels as if, oh, it's this complete like reinvention and a departure from all the tropes that came before it. But if you watch it, it's just the same old stuff, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting one. Um, I will have to go back and see that. Don't waste um, <laughs> Two and a half hours. Um, oh, I'm not sure which one of mine to jump on next. I'm going to, well, I'm going to go for one. Uh, this isn't, I don't know if this is critically lauded, but it does seem to get a pass from all critics and doesn't... Uh, this may be too passe to criticise, so we can, we can skip through it if, it's, uh, if, you, if it is, but it seems to have become, at least in people's minds, a stone-cold classic. Mm-hmm. And maybe, maybe you'll just agree with me straight away, but, but it's the, the British rom-com Love Actually. Okay, I'm not even sure if I've seen all the way through, to be honest. Right, well, it's, I mean, again, I'm sure some people have already, I think the backlash has already (laughs) been initiated because because of its absurd status, but it's, it's now got the, somehow, it's now got the status of some kind of, even in America as well, as a must watch Christmas film every single year. Mm-hmm. And where people say, I've got to watch Love Actually because it's Christmas. And the film, the film is awful. <laughs> I mean, it's really, it's really, um, it's, it's obviously one of these sort of 12 different stories, um, films, anthology films, where none of them are explored in any real depth. There's kind of, there's a ridiculous Colin Firth encouraging his kid who's deeply in love with another nine-year-old and he's sort of encouraging this kid on the delusional quest to win her heart where he's you know chasing him to the airport the last minute because he's like nine-year-old girl he's spoken to once is going back to america mm. like it's like you're you're his father you shouldn't encourage this nonsense um McCutch- there's like mccutcheon's up to old tricks isn't she as well there's yeah, apparently the prime the, the American prime minister is uh, sorry. The American president is sort of doing sort of blatantly uh, sexually inappropriate things with the British prime minister's secretary, and sort of <laughs> and it's sort of it's it's like on his like state first state visit, and then the prime minister's got to stand up and say something, 
Um, I mean, every part of it you can pick apart. Um, you know, the Liam Neeson, um, the Liam Neeson one is absurd. The Kira Knightley one, where there's a guy who secretly is better. The guy's best friend is secretly in love with Kira Knightley, but his best friend's marrying her, so he does a mental thing and goes and confesses all his deep love for her at Christmas uh, with those signs, the famous sign thing. It's all just like the worst kind of British pornography, pretty much cynically made for Americans to look and think, isn't England so bloody charming? Does the and film... Look I, 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 I think I have seen it, but I don't know if I've sat and watched it end to end. Does it, does it get somewhat of a pass within the kind of confines of the game we're playing at the moment because it's not supposed to be like does a critic actually hold it up is it is it just a film that people have a soft spot for because it's a christmas film and it pulls at the heartstrings but it's not actually objectively considered great like what's its rating I, on these I, review sites i don't know it anymore but it's oh sorry i got it wrong by the way it's liam neeson with the kid okay. colin firth has a colin firth has another ridiculous one where he's, he falls deeply in love with a woman who can't even speak his language and sure. they spend a few days together while he's writing a novel um <laughs> but uh that's like, she, won't be, she won't be reading that then yeah yeah um wait for the translation so, yeah it's liam neeson doing the chase to the airport um <laughs> it's uh I, I don't know that's the thing there's so many people when you if you badmouth this film they do think like oh my god you don't like love actually and it almost as if it's a surprise and yeah, I, I just... But that's I not just, because of its great filmmaking. It's not because it's, you know, like, oh, the tracking shots in Love Actually were incredible. Isn't that just... They're not saying... They're, it, they're saying, they're oh, you saying, don't have a heart is sort of what they're getting at, is it? I, I, yeah, to be fair, they're not saying as if it's The Godfather. But I do think genuinely people are... There are people who just think it's just a great, great bloody film. Sure. And, uh, yeah, but enough enough on that we'll dance to another one but okay. i think i think that's up there in in terms of if you actually look at the film compared to how much people love and enjoy and watch it mm -hmm. uh, it's quite absurd um okay. another one i'm gonna jump to is uh, i don't see i'm gonna step on some toes here um i think the film you like you know the pixar films george there's many great films they've made sure I'll tell you one that people talk about all the time, but really they're talking about 10 minutes of the film and it's Pixar's Up. Sure, okay. Have you seen the film Up? Yeah. It is, it is not, I'm not going to say it's a bad film. It's not. It's got, it's basically got two extremely heart-wrenching tender moments that mm. almost make up and almost basically are the, the thread of the entire film. And the rest of it, no one cares about. But, <laughs> sure, yeah. But people constantly list it as if it is, you know, not only a great film, but sort of the top three, if not one of the best Pixar films, of which they've made many, many better. And, and it's, the whole rest of it is basically filler for the story of an old man who realizes his life was worth something, even though he never got to go on the adventures with his wife. You know, he realizes he did have, they did share amazing adventures together. They just never went on their crazy exploration trip. But the rest of it is just an old man and a boy 
sort of this very boring adventure story of them, which should be amazing because they're up in the clouds. It should be a crazy, fantastical world, right? It's a completely absurd premise. So it's yeah. like, this could be amazing. But it's just like, they meet a dog oh, and it's supposed to be funny because the dog can talk like human. Like you, they can hear the dog's human thoughts. So that's meant, that's, that's the joke they repeat a hundred times in the film. Sure, yeah. Um, and then there's a co- sort of cobbled together oh, there was another old pilot who got stuck up there and became uh, bad. So we have to do, we have to just take this very fantastical premise and then just make it into a very conventional, there's a bad guy doing some stuff, so they've got to stop him uh, in a plane. And it's, it's just the whole film is completely forgettable, but people just, they're talking about the first 10 minutes, which mm. is one of the most emotionally wrenching, you know, things Pixar have ever done. Uh, where it shows the man and the woman's whole life before yeah. he gets old, and but but no one can talk about the rest of the film because it's not very good. Yeah, I'd kind of they sort of land, don't they? Like fly to South America and land on some peninsula, and there's like old animals and dinosaurs up there or something. Is that there's right? like there's like strange. If I remember, there's a strange bird. There's a strange, yeah. yeah, a couple of odd animals, but it's never. Again, no one can even remember the scenes from it yeah. because they just think, oh, that bit where he finds the album at the end is so moving. And you, you're right, but you have to do sort of 90 minutes of filler to get to that See, my, I watched it. I'm not a, like a sycophant for the Pixar films and stuff. Like I love Toy Story and some, some of the earlier ones, but uh, I've only kind of revisited them maybe when I'm past the point of them of being in the target audience for them. And I watched up after having read about how incredible even that opening 10 minute scene is. And I think the hype actually dialed that down a bit for me. I was like, Oh yeah, that was, that was really good. But I wasn't even blown away by that. You know, it's obviously a great feat of animation and storytelling and stuff, but for the relative to the amount of praise that has, I didn't, um, I didn't even go mad for that, you know? So I think, I think there's a really important thing when watching films is is when you're receiving all of that like build up when you then go and digest that material yourself it's it's always so much better to to be able to come to something without any prejudices because you're measuring it against something that obviously wasn't there when they created it they didn't create it saying this is the best 10 minutes of animation ever it's just built that up you know so I think and I think that's a big thing that actually affects people um, particularly with reading literature, because people approach things thinking, "Oh my God, I'm going to read the I don't know Crime and Punishment," and it's got 250 years of like baggage and greatness attached to it. Often, something is never going to meet, measure up to that. It's it's something that definitely affects how we receive and perceive of things for sure. Yeah, and it, and I think that moment worked when it. I think it worked when it people did go in and had no idea that yeah. emotional gut punch was going to yeah, come less to all. cinema or something, I completely get it. I think me watching it by myself five years after the fact, it's obviously removed from from that opportunity to yeah. experience, I guess. I just think if I'm going to, look, Toy Story, Monsters, Inc., Nemo, Incredibles, I, these are all better films mm. than uh, Up. And I, I, I defy anyone, if you were choosing, I don't think anyone's going to sit and go, I really want to watch Up again. But <laughs> sure. people... The way people rated and talked about it and still do, it's, uh, it seems just out of proportion with how many people actually would sit and want to watch up. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there you go. But those Pixar guys are going to be fine. I have a feeling they're going to be fine. <laughs> they're doing lots of good stuff. Um, yeah. Um, where are you? Uh, where are you taking us next, George? I'm going to have a go at an Oscar winner, Steve. Um, I'm going to have a pop oh, at the hold, hold on. Hold on right there, then. I don't, I don't know if that's going to catch on, Steve. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think we'll make that a regular feature. What, you mean interrupting the podcast <laughs> with five seconds of music? Yeah. Um, not, yeah. We, yeah well, we, we'll figure that out in post, but start. I'm trying you, to add bells and whistles post, here. This is yeah, this yeah. is edited and produced. Sure, sure. <laughs> yeah, um, Steve, the Oscar-winning film. I, th- I think it won the Oscar. I've I've not um, I've not held it in my heart enough to have checked actually. But the film I want to have a bit of a pop at is the film Spotlight. Um, oh, baffled that it won an Oscar. Um, I uh, it was just it's not a bad film. But it's not a great film. It's a sort of six six out of ten film, probably. I would say is is how I've remembered it. Uh, and I think a lot of the damage in how I perceived it, perceived it, and enjoyed it was done by the film's own trailer. Um, Spotlight is a kind of by numbers procedural about some journalists investigating obviously a very serious and hard-hitting and true story about abuse within the Catholic Church, specifically in certain dioceses in Boston. Um, But A, I think the film is always going to be held up against, well, definitely all the president's men, which is, I don't know, 20 years earlier and a far superior film. in the first place so it's already kind of i mean it, it can't it can't be held against that other films doing similar things exist of course that happens a lot but if you're going to do something like that you need to do it really well and i don't think it did it as well as the other things in that space uh, but the trailer for the film uses some <laughs> used some dialogue for the film right if you're watching a film about you know pedophile priests being weeded out you want you want you want that to really happen. That's kind of what you're coming for. And the trailer uses a bit of dialogue for the film where it said there could be as many as, I think I think the number's 90, might be 80, but it says there could be as many as 90 paedophile priests, like up to no good in this diocese. And as the film plays out, spoiler alert, there's only something like 68 paedophile priests. So I felt very shortchanged with the amount of paedophiles that were brought to justice. I have to say that that really dampened my, uh, my response to it. But... Huh. I haven't just, read any of you taken this angle yet. No, it's, it's a different opinion to take, sure, but I'm on the right side of history with it. Um, sure. The whole, the whole of the film is just nothing really happens. The most gripping scene I felt was when they bring out one of the, the priests, I think one of the journalists kind of door stops them and he's on, he's on screen for about five minutes. There was some sort of emotional tension and drama there, but the rest of the time... Yeah. It's a lot of kind of grey journalists doing a, the fairly boring job of checking facts and, you know, reading sources. The most gripping or, or kind of the biggest moment of tension in the film literally revolves around someone using a printer or a fax machine and whether the printer's got any ink or not. It's just, like, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. just all a little bit like, oh, here we go. It's all, it's all fine. 
if the film it is maybe a slightly silly thing to take but if it was exactly the same film but it was about i don't know something slightly less emotionally hard hitting you know tax evasion or something i don't think it would have had the reception it did but i think it's that conflation of serious subject matter delivered in a very sort of gray and measured and serious style like it falsely inflates how well people think the actual film itself is i think the things that the film turn on aren't particularly well done um and yeah i just i'm surprised it won oscar for best picture um it i don't think I many mean, people will be watching that in the future i mean yeah i i i very much agree with this one i was sort of hoping you'd bring this one up because um i i had the same thing i don't think there's anything wrong with the film really it's just it's just it was a i i think it the gravity of what it's about and the subject matter are interesting and almost more interesting than the actual film is because you go, I could have just watched a documentary on this and had the same effect because mm-hmm. the film store, the film narrative is not particularly powerful. It doesn't use a particularly memorable characters to deliver it or any, you know, there's nothing special that that needed to be told in that format. And uh, just looking at uh, 2015 Oscars, this is how many, these are a list of films, all of which I believe are superior to Spotlight, all nominated, Birdman, Boyhood, mm-hmm. Grand Budapest Hotel, mm-hmm. Whiplash, mm-hmm. American Sniper, Selma, yeah. <laughs> like, imitation, like Imitation Game, probably all better. Yeah, uh, probably it's, least, it's probably like the seventh the best of those, sixth or seventh best of those films. Yeah, that, I mean, that is a, I remember that year feeling like it was truly anything else sort of could have won and had a bit more merit purely, um, just purely, I mean, it, he can be twee but purely on filmmaking chops the wes anderson film wins hands down everything about that uh, makes i mean better film yeah grand budapest is uh already kind of one of his you know in, in his already formidable list of films i think it might be his best film and it's uh seems like that was a shoe in or you know birdman had a lot of goodwill behind it but yeah, and it, it was so sort of small scale in its actual, like you did, like you say, it it felt a bit like a TV movie. Yeah, it was just a kind of procedural drama. And then when I think of some of the procedural, the great procedurals that didn't win Oscars, like I even think, like David Fincher's Zodiac is an unacknowledged, uh-huh. um, you yeah. know, kind of masterwork by like him. That, much better, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that does a kind of procedural journalism uncovering a serial killer, different different story, but like that. As well, so Spotlight's directed by Tom McCarthy, who I think was showrunner for season five of The Wire, which is probably well, is objectively the worst season of The Wire, which still means it's better than ninety percent of things that have ever been on TV. But it's almost exactly the same subject material in the sense that it's set in the newsroom or set in a newspaper, and it. It's fictional, but they're, you know, following a sort of procedural approach into investigating long-standing corruption and crimes. And it delivers it in a much better, much more engaging way. They've obviously got the benefit of long-form television to do so, but he can deal with that material in a much more, um, yeah, like narratively engaging way. And I just don't feel, feel this film has it. It has the fact that the material is true and impactful on its side beyond that it's a film about someone trying to use a fax machine and it's it's yeah pretty boring oh stanley tucci has to get that file from the courthouse before it closes before yeah yeah it's a sort of tension um yeah hollywood likes a uh likes a journalism story they they certainly do yeah 
Um, um, oh, well. I, well, I'm going to go straight to another Oscar winner, George. Um, cool. We're not going to go very far from that, but I'm going to go to last year's Oscar winner, Best Picture, Shape of Water. I mean, uh, you're, on Ad- as, you're on record as slagging that thing off on our podcast already, so get go on, lay into it. I'm, yeah, I've probably... I've probably already gone there as such. I think, um, you know, The Shape of Water, it, it, again, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't get my back up if it, if it was not being called the best film of that year and <laughs> reaching first on multiple critics' top 10 lists. Yeah. I don't know quite what happened with the momentum that, that suddenly swept up this film because when it came out, it was just... Sudden, suddenly it was like everyone was talking about it for a couple of months and it was, you've got to see Shape of Water. And I think we went together, George, on one of our little trips um, to the cinema. And uh, I, I felt that, you know, I like Guillermo del Toro. I really like Pan's Labyrinth. I think it's his best film. I felt with, you know, he has a way with the sort of fairy tale aesthetic and marrying it with real life, which is basically what Pan's Labyrinth already did a uh, much more interesting way by mixing it with this, you know, Spanish civil war um, story as well. But the shape of water had this, I guess the premise I'm going to describe as creature from the black lagoon meets ET um, with some romance thrown in. So it's, you know, if someone fell in love with the creature from the black lagoon. Um, and so it's already a, an extremely bizarre premise Never really explained why, why you would have a romantic attachment to this. <laughs> what was it? She was, monster. she was deaf, or she was either deaf or mute. So therefore, her only love interest could be like a fish man. I'd, that that <laughs> right. seemed to be the suggestion, which I I imagine is fairly offensive. I don't know. I don't know if that was pushed as the reason, but she was kind of held up as a bit of a vulnerable outsider. And so was yeah. the weird creature from the Black Lagoon, but there's obviously no what, actual comparison what between I, the two people. Yeah, and what, what I said to you is the film feels like, it feels like a DJ mashup of several genres um, all splashed in. And there's a, there's a bit of classic sort of Hollywood story because it sort of makes references to sort of old Hollywood romances. And it throws in the creature from the Black Lagoon thing. It throws in this little guy versus the big bad government thing. It has this absurd villain who is just a complete cardboard cutout, evil government agent man um, who is just pure evil from the moment it starts. So there's absolutely no character to this villain. Um, and, uh, and then there's just lots of very visually elaborate scenes when the romance starts, but it, it all sort of meanders to enough. Everything is, every beat is predictable and it never does something where you think this is going to really undercut this staple premise with something interesting. It's just, no, what's interesting about this is just that we've spliced all these genres together and made a fairly predictable by the numbers film out of them that is basically like E.T. or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, don't, please, government man, don't kill my friend. Um, I mean, the only difference really with my this and E.T. and the premise is that, I mean the kids fall in love with E.T., right? It just happens to be that in this, they're adults and they have like an emotional, like a physical relationship. It's not even a particularly developed take on that kind of film. Yeah. And, and so when it was raved and loved, I just thought, what, 
what is being what are people seeing here thematically what's the depth here that is actually in because because pan's labyrinth pan's labyrinth actually has deeper themes in there that are about whether the child is deluded or whether the fantastical events are actually happening and there's a political metaphor with the civil war there's stuff about the innocence versus the corruption uh, that's going on outside her and how she's hidden from the innocence and all the uh, sorry from the corruption there's there's a lot to unpack there um and it's got really interesting twists and scary bits on the, the sort of fairy tale genre. Um, this I just just left me with nothing really. It was just uh, visually very impressive, which I expect from Guillermo del Toro. It's very well shot and directed. Um, there's nothing to complain about there, but but it just feels like it's very hollow at the core, really. And mm. I, I don't really get what the fuss was about. Yeah, again, I, I think maybe quite a good metric is well especially for films that are winning Best Picture is will people be watching this in 10, 15, 20 years' time? I don't think a ton of people are going to be going out of their way to watch that film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And there's films that you can already see. You know, I I think that is the metric because you can see from films even that were made in 2008 or 9 that that already are, say, modern classics. Like, say... um, I think in 2009 or something, The Social Network won Best Screenplay Oscar, right? Mm-hmm. And The Social Network is already l- lauded as like, people rewatched that a lot. It's referenced constantly. It's seen as kind of a modern classic status. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. It has a, it has a place where people re- refer to that film a lot as a, they rewatch it anytime it's on. But with films like, say, Spotlight or Shape of Water, it's just who who's popping on Spotlight with their friends, going, "I've got to show you this because it's just it's just a great film." You've yeah, got to watch it. yeah. Or you can learn, you know, learn some amazing things about cinematography or script writing, whatever. You know, like something like There Will Be Blood. It yeah, or like excels on or four like, or five yeah. different facets that you could, even if you're just a scholar of cinematography or a scholar, scholar that's making it sound too esoteric. But if you just want to appreciate the visuals or just appreciate the scripting or something, there's lots of things you can pull from it. Something like Spotlight, I mean, the something like cinematography to me doesn't even factor into how it was made, and it's such a fundamental aspect of making cinema um, that it's almost just it does, like you say, come down to a bit of a TV movie procedural. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. Um, how are we doing for time, Chief? Um, I think I don't think we're I don't think we're droning on like we did last week. I think we could probably rattle a couple more off each. Okay, we want to we want to respect you as the audience's time. Um, you know, you bear you bear with us for a few long podcasts. So we're we're trying to dance a bit more. Well, well, like you say, we can we can deal with it in post, can't we? We can cut this puppy down to about twenty five minutes. Great, great stuff. Yeah, yeah. Hack it away. Yeah. Um, you, what's what's on what's in your little list? You know what? I'm go- I'm going to pick something that's um, a bit of a strange choice, and I think it's um, I'm measuring a sequel up to the the original film. How I felt about the original versus how I felt about the sequel, and within the genre, how that the first and second film have been received. Um, I'm talking, my pick for supposed to be good that I really, really do not like is the film John Wick 2. Um, Ah. Keanu Reeves action vehicle, um, which was a film that kind of crept up on people, particularly the first one, John Wick. It's uh, fairly, almost in real time, 
full-on intense action film with some incredibly well shot kind of kung fu but with with guns action film where in the first one long story short keanu reeves is a kind of hitman his dog gets killed by some nasty people and he seeks vengeance on them it's very small scale but done in this incredibly like kinetic and exciting way in a way that even though it's ludicrous feels quite contained and realistic within the world it's established um the second one obviously ramps that up dials it up throws more budget at it but to me just felt like it stripped away all the things that made the first one such a kind of riveting action film to just plunk yourself in front of and enjoy it just it added these layers upon layers of kind of all the things that maybe it's just me but all the things that make me kind of like cringe and shudder so it added he's a hitman and he's part of this world where all these hitmen meet in a hotel and have all these kind of like, uh, like nicknames for each other and these code words and oh, just these very schlocky scenes of him going to see the quote unquote, the tailor. And they use all these bits of dialogue about, Oh, sir, we're going to measure you for a suit, but actually they're going to make him some body armor and all this stuff. And it just, it takes you so out of the action that, I hated it and as as the film goes on it's as if there's this sort of secret society of assassins by the end of the film it's as if every single person I think it's in New York every single person in New York's an assassin it's as if there's no one who isn't and it just it so rapidly left the world of man has dog killed and goes for vengeance into this grand sort of conspiracy world that was it's just unbearable for me. Um, and it, it lost all the heart that the first one had. So for as much as I loved the first and I hated the second, that's kind of my justification for, for laying into it right here. What are your thoughts on it? Um, I see, I did enjoy, I did enjoy watching John Wick too. Um, I thought, see, I, I actually think the action was better in the second one that they, they obviously upped the budget massively. Um, so they did more elaborate things, but the action was really fast and furious. Um, I, uh, um, I, I did enjoy it. I, I think the universe they build is, is kind of ridiculous and the whole hotel thing gets mental Oof. with its, you know, it just suddenly makes these rules in a world and the whole thing is almost just, just completely larger than life. But it, um, it sort of, doesn't it undermine the world that the first one established to some degree? So it, it by doing all that kind of world building and all that stuff, it, it just it reduces if that's the world that exists, then the first film suddenly in hindsight is this really like narrow minded piece and it, it doesn't all fit together particularly well. I there's something very standalone about the first one that I liked that spinning the sequel out from it just undoes all the good work that the first one did. To me, anyway. Well, the first one had more of like a stripped down quality, but I do think I, I, the second one's a bit more like a comic book, right? It's a bit more, the first one's more like this tight, gritty, singular story. And then the second one almost goes, let's expand this. It's almost like a comic book world uh, where it's got these rules and there's all yeah. these hitmen everywhere and it's kind of absurd. But, but I did like, I did find a second one in some ways more entertaining because I actually, I found the first one was, was so stripped back. Sometimes it was a bit slow at the beginning. 
it, it took a while to get into it. The second one, I liked the, I did like some elements of building up the elaborateness, the sort of more grand fights. Um, Cause that's only what I'm there for really is like a little bit of story and some really good fights. Yeah. And I think... kind of did deliver that to me in spades. So I was thoroughly entertained watching it, even when it was being a bit hammy and cartoonish with the hotel stuff. I was yeah, just like, well, I, th- I think for me that the world takes a lot away from the fights for me. It, um, whereas the first one, I think the premise of John, not the premise, but the kind of backstory to the John Wick films are there are the directed or at least created by a guy who spent a lot of time as a stuntman and a double, right? So there's a lot of emphasis on the action to me, then all the world building feels very superfluous. So I really enjoyed it for its just the physicality of the fights and the kind of kinetic way they're done. Keanu Reeves is great at this kind of slightly like vacuous, but incredibly fluid um, kind of character. Um, yeah, I, I just felt that all the things I loved about the first one, the sort of tight knit knittedness of it and uh, the efficiency and kind of punk, punchiness of it was just completely like sold down the river by the world building of the second so that i i just wasn't invested in any of the fighting or anything that was going on so um that that's my reason for for disliking it i think most of the reviews do hold up number two to be quite strong and all the holes or the the issues i have with it aren't really touched on in those reviews so i think that's that's why i i came to it with quite a lot of negativity because to me they felt like quite glaring issues that haven't really been touched on too much. Yeah, uh, it's yeah, it's interesting. I, I I get given why you like the first one, the reasons you're saying. I get why the second one wasn't for you. I just I just remember watching them very close succession, and I remember being more more entertained by the second one. Mm. I thought I'm actually enjoying this more because i'm it's just kind of more bigger and better than the first one the first one was at some point maybe the first one was oversold to me because i kind of some people just kept talking about it and then i watched and i was like oh that's kind of a little mm. little revenge story well, I think that's and then the quite second one important. i was like yeah i think what you're saying there's really important because it is also like we said a bit earlier the prejudices or whatever you bring to them when i watched the first one i had almost no preconceptions and that was just incredibly pleasantly surprised by this fairly unheralded low-key film that delivered these amazing things and then the second one came with all that added baggage and i feel like it really let itself down in comparison to those so maybe maybe it is a question of coming to things with baggage but that's probably what this whole podcast is about really right uh yeah yeah I, I think that's right and i i just went to two being like oh i'll just watch more of the same because i watched the first one now i was like oh this is really like i was like this has gone nuts but i kind of enjoyed the nutsness of it um, sure. yeah um uh i'm seeing if i've got anything like really that has to be discussed on my list there's one i want to bring up because i think i'd be interested i'm i'm on the fence about this but i do i do think there's something here um the film that i think has a it has an extremely looms large in popular culture still and i feel if you actually watch it it's it's kind of uh what's the word it's it's completely over over the top in terms of in, kind of indulgent and i think that film is scarface with al pacino mm. yeah um i don't i don't dislike it but if I think of gangster genre, there's several films I would obviously tell people to watch before Scarface. 
Scarface obviously has this enormous place in, in Al Pacino and, and cultural pantheon and in like rap music and in other culture. It's a big pop culture touchstone. Mm-hmm. And it has some really memorable scenes. It has some really memorable. The final shootout is kind of epic blood, blood-soaked insanity. It has these, you know, Al Pacino doing the funny accent. It has him with the, the scene with the chainsaw and it's all like, you know, chainsaw in the bathtub. It has some great Brian De Palma sort of bloody scenes, but it's um, it, it's also really long and it does feel, it's kind of maybe not justified its place in culture. It, I get I get that it was maybe the first to do a lot of things like that whole I don't know, the the gangster in Miami maybe and that that whole it has a distinct visual style that is really memorable. There's basically I'm not I've not got a lot of bad things to say about it, but I don't also I don't also ever really wanna put it on and rewatch it. And it yeah. I prefer I prefer a lot of Coppola or Scorsese's gangster films or you know, a handful of others that yeah, as, rate above. Uh, as a film, something like Goodfellas is an infinitely better film you know like the mechanics that come together to make that a film are i think infinitely better than the mechanics that come together to make scarface I, scarface is also pretty just like hokey in parts and i think those cultural yeah. touchstone scenes carry so much of the weight whereas like you say it's over long and a lot of it is just like a bit naff and he shot at him but he missed and it was just a bit silly and all this stuff is yeah, yeah, and like Al Pacino is kind of Al Pacino's kind of hamming it. Like he's got a strange yeah. accent. He's meant to be Cuban, right? But yeah, he's dying. Yeah, it's kind of like up to a level. It's kind of, of yeah. He like like really sort of um, takes it up. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a it film to, for a restrained performance necessarily, but just every yeah, everything about it is just a little bit OTT, which I guess comes with the territory. But yeah, as as an like a film, a piece of filmmaking, it's it's definitely got an over over heralded representation. I mean, if you ever watch Cribs and there's a, an American footballer or a rapper on there, it's going to be there. It's like, yeah, yeah, they love it. It's just like, it's the film to me that I've seen the most posters of on MTV's Cribs. Yeah, and I, I just think if you want a better power corrupt story, anything like The Godfather has so much more yeah. to say and so much more richness, whereas this one is just a bit like throw everything at the wall. And it's it's that Brian De Palma thing. Like he'll make these big, huge set piece sequences that are memorable. But yeah, I just I just think that film doesn't give you a lot to go on other than, yeah, obsessively going after money and power will probably make you quite corrupt yeah. and burying your nose in cocaine probably isn't the best idea yeah it will end badly <laughs> yeah um all right then i mean that- i've got i've got, you got any more? i could squeak i could probably squeak another one out all right squeak squeak one more in and we'll we'll call it there <laughs> um i'm i'm just gonna have a, have a pop at another fairly recent film steve that i don't think was as good as it thought it was um and because of two maybe three scenes in it i went from thinking oh yeah that's pretty good to i really didn't enjoy my time watching that film the film i'm talking about is the big short oh right okay um which i think we may have seen together again um but my 
dislike of the film comes down to how I feel it really patronises the audience with the the selection of scenes where it uses a celebrity to explain a, a fairly difficult concept. Um, so it's a film about the financial crisis and the subprime loan issues and these kinds of things. And the film does, I think, a very good job of making fairly boring subject matter with fer- fairly boring real-life people. Quite compelling, quite interesting. And I think all of those characters are more than capable of explaining the issues that are going on to the audience in a way that we can keep up with them. But rather than doing that, the directors decided to go, oh, to explain this kind of loan, here's what Selena Gomez in the bath to explain it to you. And I, I Margo, found that... Margot Robbie in the bath. Robbie in the bath, Gomez at a bar then maybe. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I just found that, A, sort of insulting to just the average viewer, B, quite insulting to the actresses in question you know it's like here's it's sort of playing off on the idea that you know you wouldn't expect margot robbie to be able to tell you this but here she is but obviously right, she's reading yeah. from a script so does she actually know what it means and as a viewer i can keep up if a character's telling me you know they explain lots of difficult things so why make the decision to break those bits up if it is just here's some sexy women talking about stuff then you're sort of insulting the viewer uh, I mean, it's, yeah, just every, everything about those decisions really got my back up. And um, I feel like it undermined the good job that they were doing elsewhere. And I, yeah, it, it took a lot away from me. And I'd, I'd said this to, to my girlfriend before she watched the film quite recently. And she was like, oh, you know, what a silly thing for you to say. Like, why? It's really surprising that you'd be annoyed by that. Um, I'm going to watch it. And then when she watched it, she said, yeah, I I thought exactly the same. It like breaks the flow of the film up and it just kind of made me question the decisions that were made. Um, I don't know how you felt about that. Yeah, I found those scenes the most, I do, I do enjoy the big short. I think it was, it has, it's very entertaining film. It's, uh, I don't like those parts where it feels like it, it thinks it's, oh, it, my job is to explain the, Amer- the financial crisis to the American public. It has a kind of condescending tone at times yeah. where it's like the smart guys are going to explain to you now what happened. And I get there was a lot of very complex things going on and they, they did a fairly good job to be fair of trying to get the idea of, you know, bad mortgages across and what was going on. But I felt there could have been much more elegant ways to do that in the script or the characters there was- should just, do it in a discussion, right? It shouldn't be breaking. Yeah, breaking. Uh, it's like, and I feel like an Aaron Sorkin film could have made you follow that, you know, in the social network or something. They don't pause and go, well, let me explain what's going on in the court case to you. It's, yeah, but uh, not even let me, but here's a sexy lady in the bath to do it. I mean, what, what yeah. are you looking at? Yeah, that, that seemed weirdly, like you, it has an odd, like you, I felt an odd tone there and it's like, yeah, there is something, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it is patronising to the person as well, to be like, oh, we've got Selena Gomez now yeah. to tell you about it. It's, uh, yeah, I, those, scenes, those scenes I didn't respond to at all. Mm. Um, well, yeah, so that, that to me, I think, is just sort of indicative that certain little decisions can have a, a big impact, certainly, on how I perceive something, because, 
like when you're talking about a good film, like you say with Up or something, you're looking at the whole package, right? You can't just rely on, oh, it had an amazing opening 10 minutes and forget the rest. And conversely, you can't really get away with, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 really bad or incongruous minutes and then still, you know, oh, but overall it's really good. Well, it's it's a, a combination of all these pieces and how they fit together. That's the test of a really well-made film. And if a few of those pieces fall away or leave you like breaking from the film viewing experience, then I don't think they've succeeded in their job. And I don't think they're therefore deserving of that great reputation that some of these have. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, well, we've about hit a nice little hour there. So I feel like it's a good place for us to, um, pull the plug, you know, at ease, pull, <laughs> uh, pull our punches. I think it would be fun to do, um, one where we talk about things that are underrated actually. Yeah, um, I think, you're I right. think we should do one where we, a little positive spin. And I feel like we could actually probably unearth some hidden gems that we think were unfairly maligned, but are actually really great movies. I think that, um, that shows that we're actually good people at heart, Steve, and not just out to stick the knife into people that, that have achieved a lot more than we have. We're not, we're not just a bunch of haters over here. <laughs> um, yeah, I, but it's actually a, a good little list. Um, I'm, I'm not going to discuss it on this one, George, but I'm just going to throw this out there. This was one on my list that we didn't really talk about, but I really like the filmmaker Paul Thomas Anderson. I think There Will Be Blood. I think Boogie Nights, I think The Master, all very timeless, memorable films. I think the film Magnolia is a mess. <laughs> I think it's a three-hour mess with it's some good it. bits, of, some good bits of Tom Cruise. But what Should is that film? About? What is that film about? I mean, I, I and I don't mean that in. I can take a David Lynch obscure surrealist whatever film, but. Magnolia just seems like a collection of stuff thrown into a screen. It's got 12 different stories. Um, I, yeah, that film, that's a film where I really wanted to like it because I'd heard so many good things. I was expecting a sort of a really aesthetically transcendent experience. And it's, I think I've tried twice and I finished it, but I just have like, I've tried twice to love the film. And I really like the Tom Cruise stuff where he's playing the kind of crazy uh, pickup artist guy. There's a couple of good bits, but the whole film to me, there's raining frogs at the end. There's like a 15 minute opening that doesn't seem to relate to the rest of the film. There's, I just, yeah, that, that film, I really want to like it, but I don't think I do. Mm. Well, we will say that I, I very much enjoyed it. And I think, um, yeah, maybe you'll you'll have to you'll have to explain it or sell it to me because it's we'll have just a whole podcast on Magnolia next week. Something about Magnolia I can't grasp, and everyone yeah. else can, and I just can't. Yeah, there, there's just some part, and I like that filmmaker as well. So I I'm just wondering why that film. I just don't respond to it. Yeah, so it's a brain teaser. That's something to leave you on. Hmm. Um, well, we we don't have. I don't think we have any recommendations this week, Steve, because we spent a whole podcast telling you what not to watch. So, um, I mean, that's as good advice as what to do, isn't it? Really. Um, yeah, I think that's fine. That's that's plenty to chew on. Tell us what your overrated movies are in the comments, either on SoundCloud or on iTunes, um, or you can tweet me at Stephen H Hussey. And you can also subscribe to the podcast either on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, 
um, or just subscribe to us on SoundCloud. Um, but yeah, if you want to leave us a review or a rating, we will love you and appreciate you. And uh, I think that's it. Beautiful. Now for post-production. All right, guys. We'll say goodbye there. Thanks for joining us. Cheers, guys. Speak soon. Bye-bye.